one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 410, for the week of Monday, March 26th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Happy to be back here, Sawyer. How you doing today? Doing okay, thanks. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hey, well, if I got the mic for a minute, do I get to keep it, or do I have to give it back? Well, you get to keep your mic. Whether you use it or not, that will say, but... I'll do what I can. <laughs> All right, so let's get into our first story, which involves a couple of launches that occurred. One of them was on March 23rd at 12.34 a.m. Eastern Time. That was an Ariane 5 rocket carrying the Automated Transfer Vehicle 3, or ATV-3, also known as Eduardo Amaldi. That unmanned vehicle was launched the International Space Station, carrying 7.2 tons of supplies, including food, water, clothing, experiments, and fuel for the space station. And according to ESA, who launched the vehicle, that is the heaviest load of cargo ever delivered to the station by a robotic spacecraft. That launch was from the Guiana Space Center in Kourou, French Guiana, and that should dock to the International Space Station about two hours after this episode releases... And that's March 28th, Wednesday, at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, sorry, the uh, ATV, that thing is, is pretty big. No, I mean, I recall seeing a, uh, I think it was on uh, uh, Space.com, they had a uh, nice little graphic out there showing how big the ATV is. And it's almost about the size of the Apollo capsule, no? It's 35 feet or 10.7 meters in length, 14.7 feet or 4.5 meters wide, large enough to fit a double-decker bus. Hey, let me stand, stand corrected. That's not just the Apollo capsule. That's that's the entire CM and uh, SM stack. That's the service module attached to it. So that thing's pretty darn big. So you can you can you know really really pack a lot of a lot of good stuff in there. And uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, once it arrives, uh, it's going to be really really uh, a good deal for uh, the crew on board. Indeed, it'll stay on the station for six months until garbage is thrown in it and a planned re-entry is set for it to burn up. And the name Eduardo Amaldi, by the way, is for the Italian physicist who was one of the founding fathers of CERN and is credited with helping to create the European Space Agency. And while we're talking about that, we have another story that we're going to talk about really quickly also involving a launch. And that was the launch of the Intelsat. Now, the launch was aboard a Proton rocket on March 26th. And that was from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. 
The satellite itself is a communications satellite which will be used to provide C and KU band capacity for media, government, and network services throughout Africa, Asia, Europe, as well as the Middle East. And fun fact, it also has a specialized UHF communications payload for the Australian Defense Force. Ooh, uh-oh, look out. But uh, I have a sneaking suspicion, too, that uh, uh, we're probably, as as our own you know, ingrown launch capabilities grow, and, and by that I'm talking uh, you know, SpaceX and uh, those guys, I'm sure that that's going to, you know, that may mean that IntelSat soon may be launching from uh, from Kennedy Space Center rather than from Baikonur. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, with this new uh, uh, commercial uh, launch launch uh, initiative that's going on here in the States. So we'll just have to see uh, if we're going to give uh, uh, Roscosmos a run for their money in that respect. Indeed, the satellite built by Boeing, by the way, is replacing a satellite that was at the exact same longitude of 72 degrees east. And is scheduled to operate for 18 years. And this is according to SpaceNews.com. Wow. Alrighty then. So we've got a couple of launches out of the way. Now, Gene, where are we taking us? Into space somewhere? Yeah, just just to reiterate, just one other thing before I go ahead and uh, talk about the story I was going to talk about. Um, it looks like the Wallops Island uh, uh, sounding rockets, all that, that five string of sounding rockets that we discussed last week, uh, that particular launch has once again been postponed. It's it's just like trying to to get an observational astronomy course going in uh, in March, I guess here in, in along the uh, uh, the Mid Atlantic. It's just one of the, the most uh, cloudiest and uh, rainiest uh, times of the year here. So uh, we're, they're going to try again um, this coming Tuesday. Uh, so just be on the lookout for that here on the uh, on the uh, eastern seaboard here and and in the mid Atlantic region uh, because some of that uh, will be able to be seen here. So uh, again, that so, so far looks like it's going to be Tuesday. It'll be after this airs, but uh, uh, just you know we'll have to see what what uh, what comes of that. The story I was going to talk about, we're going to go back to the European Space Agency. Uh, again, we had the ATV launch this week, but. Um, it looks like the Europeans are trying to go ahead and talk to the Chinese to discuss future cooperation in uh, manned spaceflight. And this also may include uh, the potential for a uh, Shenzhou spacecraft to dock at the International Space Station. This is from an article uh, dated March 26th. Uh, by Amy Stivak, and this is appearing on Aviation Week. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting that uh, Europe is also looking for options to get to the International Space Station. The Chinese in the article confess, however, um, that they cannot dock with the ISS at this point, and it's it's a technical reason. It's not due to treaty or you know not having a partnership agreement with China, but that has has some you know something to do with it. The newly named director of the uh, of the China Man Space Engineering Office, uh, uh, Wang Xiao, I believe, and, and I'm probably mauling the the man's uh, uh, last name uh, badly here, um, is basically saying that for the moment uh, we cannot dock or rendezvous and, and rendezvous with the International Space Station because our system does not is not the same as the Americans use or the Russians use. Uh, but they are looking to change that, and they were saying that, quote, we would like to have, have cooperation in this matter, close quote. So um, 
it's going to be very interesting to take a look at it and see what happens and what develops from this. Uh, um, European uh, Space Agency Director uh, General uh, Jean-Jacques Jordan basically met with uh, uh, China on between March 22nd and March 23rd to discuss any future cooperation in manned spaceflight. So this is going to be very, very interesting to see what the implications of this are going to be, not just from a European standpoint, but will the rest of the partners get buy-in uh, to allow China to, to come into the, into the ISS? Uh, guys, what do you think? Do you think that's going to actually happen or, or what? Or do you think that's going to be a problem here, here in the United States? I mean, when it comes to the International Space Station, the agreement is for a nation to join, all nations must agree on it. So that's going to be the interesting part, as you're just mentioning, is will everybody, especially the United States, go ahead and say, come on board? It's like you were saying, it has nothing, as of right now, it's just technology. Although I have a feeling, because in the past, members of NASA, high up members, have blatantly said straight out, we refuse to work with China. And I have a feeling that China may end up saying okay to Europe, and Europe may end up saying okay to China. But I have a feeling the U.S. is going to be that one veto that says no, and China will not become a part of the International Space Station, and they'll continue with their Tianyang at the moment. You think the Russians are also going to have a, a bit of a conniption, or because that basically ends their monopoly, essentially, right now at least, if, uh, if China gets on board, or, or what do you guys think? Well, they don't necessarily – well, they currently have the monopoly, true, but that monopoly is quickly disappearing with the SpaceX launch coming up in April if that docks. Well, that's a partial uh, deal. Remember, uh, the Dragon right now is not configured for for manned spaceflight. It can be, as we saw last week with all those, those wonderful photographs of what the interior of the Dragon looks like. Um, but uh, uh, right now, it, it is not configured to do that. Um, and it's going to be some time before it really is ready to carry astronauts to the to the ISS. So uh, then, it, then that monopoly is, isn't over yet. Then what I should say is they should probably be more concerned about SpaceX accomplishing it first than China. Yeah, I th and, and and to me that's not a concern. To me that's a good mm -hmm. thing. Well, true. It's, yeah, I mean, if if it means you know, if if SpaceX succeeds, or if uh, Boeing with the CST-100, if they succeed, or if uh, uh, Sierra Nevada succeeds with the uh, um, the Dream Chaser, I mean, it, it's it's all it's all good for the future of the ISS, I think, and possibly even the future of future commercial low Earth orbit operations. So. Um, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, right now I just don't, uh, I, I, I'm with you, Sawyer. I just don't see the U S agreeing to allow China on board the ISS. It's, it's one of those sticky political things. I mean, it, um, it may be a, you know, it may be a nice alternative for, for, for Europe, but then Europe may be able to push it, but I just don't see how far it's going to go. All right. So we'll keep our eyes on China and see how they're upcoming mission goes and if they end up partnering and what the other nations say speaking of what the other nations say mark it's your turn well, as long as we're uh, hanging around outer space i'd like to uh, bring up a few points that i thought were really interesting for folks that want to know a little bit more about the routine business that goes on on the international space station 
Now, my source for this was a YouTube video that we'll provide a link to that was on Tuesday, March 20th. It ran about an hour and 15 minutes long. The audio starts out a little, actually rather poor for the first minute or so, and then it smooths out and it's it's peachy keen and good. So be patient through the introductions and you'll be happy with the rest of the briefing. But they talked about the current status of the ISS, some problems that they uh, are looking at, looking at solutions, looking at a spacewalk for a solution. And this has to do with power. It's a device called the main bus switching unit. There are four of them on board the ISS. And this unit number one is no longer communicating to the rest of the systems that are part of this electrical power distribution system. It's passing power. It hasn't failed. They just can't talk to it and get status and commands and, and do the things that are important to know what the overall health and condition of the unit is. So there's a possibility of a spacewalk later in the year to replace this with a spare. I probably said more than I wanted to because I really want people to, to go watch this video and listen to what these program managers and, and folks are talking about. They're talking about crew rotation, EVA schedules. They're talking about Expedition 32 going up, Expedition 33. They show a real neat uh, video-type depiction showing the various cargo ships coming and going, and they show that on the structure of the space station to give you an idea of where they are relative to uh, docking ports and which docking ports they'll use. They talk about SpaceX having, of course, its planned launch coming up, and also the fact that uh, if, if the launch coming up at the end of April and docking, if everything is successful there, that SpaceX-1, the first cargo flight, could be in August. If not, they may have that spacewalk that they'll uh, look to schedule to replace that main bus switching unit. And one of the things that they talk about here is on Expedition 32 and 33, things that are coming up. There's going to be development on an instant messaging system. For instance, if you think about when you're in a, a big area, spread out different, let's say, in, in what we're used to in offices or workplaces, and you're talking to somebody maybe on an intercom, and you don't get an answer right away. First thing is, did they hear me? Did, did one of us drop offline, or, or did the guy leave the room? So they're working on some improvements to communications, which they'll have like an instant messaging or chat or an email system. And I, it's hard for me to grasp exactly what the differences are when you say email from what they probably already have. But they are looking to have a better way to communicate directly with people no matter where they are. Not necessarily an astronaut, cosmonaut that's that's got a headset on, not necessarily somebody that's standing in front of a speaker and holding the mic like we see oftentimes in the videos where they're, they're talking to uh, their various ground control sites. There's going to be some CubeSats launched. They're going to come up via an HTV later on. They'll be deployed from an external uh, airlock on Kibo, grasped by a RMS arm, and moved out into clear space, and they'll release five CubeSats. Uh, one of the things that's key that we hear about a lot and look forward to hearing more of is research on the ISS. To date, there have been nearly 1,300 investigations performed through Expedition 30. These have involved over 1,300 scientists in 65 countries worldwide. 
Through the remainder of the year, there's going to be over 200 investigations performed in areas of human research, biology, biotech, earth and space sciences, physical science, technology, development, and education. Also, on one of the uh, cargo flights going up, I believe it's HTV, they are taking an aquatic habitat. They're going to have freshwater fish, and they identify medaka and zebrafish. They're going to have an aquarium on the ISS that they're going to raise and observe and watch multiple generations of these small, beautiful little aquarium fish to see how they develop. And they have flown before. So um, anyway, that's just a teaser of some of that stuff. Logistics, they mentioned they're in good shape for this year and next Partner vehicles such as HTV and ATV have slid to the right. In other words, they've been delayed slightly, and they felt that was a prudent thing to focus on getting the details right as they get closer to flying. They don't want to rush the commercial providers that are coming along. They say STS left them in really good shape for logistics, like I said, for 2012 and into 2013. Somebody asked the question, this is something I wondered about, but I guess I missed this if it was mentioned at some other times. What happens to the ISS if they don't get commercial resupply? If orbital doesn't happen when it needs to, if SpaceX has problems, what happens? Basically, they said that with HTV and ATV and, of course, Progress, they could keep the crew on board, but there wouldn't be much in the way of research. They weren't talking at all about returning the crew home, but if you lose that additional cargo up mass capability from our U.S. companies that are in development, if you lose that capability of carrying cargo up to replace what the shuttle has done for so many years, then it's an impact to science. So this is important, but... They say that uh, in talking about SpaceX coming up, they say commercial resupply to the ISS does not hang on this one SpaceX flight that we're looking at for the end of April going into uh, May. They see up mass improving. Dragon is going to allow some down mass capability. It'll bring things back from the ISS. Um, payload for this Dragon test flight that's coming up is going to be four to 500 kilograms. It's going to be things like low-sodium food, some crew supplies. There'll be no one-of-a-kind ORUs, orbital replacement units, but it'll be important supplies. And it'll give the uh, folks up on the ISS some practice with real cargo, unloading and reloading the Dragon capsule. The question was asked, what about the pump module that came back on STS-135? They're doing failure analysis of it. They found ammonia coolant leaked into a stator area of the pump, which is an electric motor component of the pump, and it resulted in failure of the pump. They don't know the root cause. Did they have worn bearings that allowed wear that caused the leak, or did the leak occur and cause the pump motor failure? Basically, they found ammonia in places they don't normally find it. The disassembly process is very step-by-step, -step, very meticulous, because basically I know my own experience in troubleshooting, sometimes you get one chance to see something, and once you break something down to a certain point, you lose the, the little hints to give you an idea of what happened. Um, they are saying that with pumps that are on orbit now that are running, they see no problems, no signs of electrical current fluctuations like they saw with that pump module before it failed. And last but not least, I'm going to tease you a little bit with this, but for the first time ever, they had questions via Twitter 
during a media press briefing. The questions came from folks like at RISSVI, another person at Quincy Sewer, at Cecil IT, and at Datachick. So they took one, two, three, four questions, some of which broke into a couple of answers. And I was thrilled to see that the uh, folks on the briefing panel did a, just an outstanding job of, of talking to, to real folks. And, of course, I, I genuinely look forward to the questions that the press asked because there's some really sharp people and they really ask some great questions. But I would encourage you to check out this YouTube video and watch it. It's an hour and 15 minutes long, and I think you'll find it very informative. Sit back and enjoy it. And it'll give you a picture better than any four-paragraph article on the web or anything that I've said. This far exceeds anything I can tell you in a synopsis, and I hope you enjoy it. What you're talking about, the upmass on the uh, on the ISS, first off, it, it really does look like that the wisdom of flying STS-135 was probably uh, probably the best thing they ever did to get the ISS you know, configured for this little space of time here that we're going to have between um, shuttle and whatever is, else is coming down the pike. So again, uh, the wisdom of flying 135 is proven. I believe the ATV though is only really scheduled to have five vehicles. So you probably could check me on that since that was your that that was your story earlier uh, with that. But I think ATV is only scheduled to fly about five times. So I'm kind of wondering we're going to probably lose ATV uh, later on. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering what we're going to do to replace the upmass, but by then I hope, you know, Dragon and, and, uh, and Cygnus, which is the orbital, um, the orbital entry will be up and, and going, but definitely this, this shows, you know, some really good stuff. And I think that's really, really neat too, that, uh, they opened up the floor to, uh, to Twitter users and, um, to anybody who wanted to ask a question. Hey, Mark, I'm with you. I mean, there's some really, really bright folks in, in the press corps, but uh, but shoot, it's it's really neat to get some questions from uh, from space enthusiasts out there. So I thought that I'm going to have to check that video out. I missed that. I missed that conference completely. By the way, Gene, just to answer what you were uh, inquiring about, the next two plane ATVs, there's ATV4 Albert Einstein and ATV5 Georges Lemaitre, and those are scheduled to launch in 2013 and 2014, respectively, and that's it. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So I'm wondering if uh, ESA is going to go ahead and and continue the ATV program after ATV five. I would I would guess this is one of those things that uh, planning is sort of in flux and in process at this time, because the space station took took a while to build. It's just become operational from the construction perspective for the U.S. Mm-hmm. and um, I found a, a mention during this conference. They said that if they wanted to add a progress capsule, that there's a two-year call-up for that. In other words, if uh, we went to Russia today and said we need another progress, they'd say, okay, we'll get it to you, but we got to put it in the workflow, and it'll take us two years to, to get it uh, out the door. The next story, as we begin our second go-around, around the table, comes back to me, and it involves a couple of things. The International Space Station and a project that we helped out with through YouTube and Google. We talked a little bit about this back when it was first announced, about the YouTube Space Lab, where students could enter videos on YouTube proposing an idea for an experiment to be performed aboard the International Space Station. There were thousands, in fact, who entered, and even more who voted. And they came around and announced the winners. 
There were regional, and then there were two grand prize winners. The regional winners won a chance to go down to Washington, D.C., and to actually fly aboard a zero-G flight. On top of that, the two winners will get their actual experiments flown aboard the International Space Station and will be streamed live on YouTube. Now, the two winners have been announced. The winners are Dorothy Chen and Sarah Ma of the United States and Amir Mohammed of Egypt. Now, the two actual experiments that they have planned, the two winners from the United States, Dorothy Chen and Sarah Ma, theirs was called Could Alien Superbugs Cure Disease on Earth? Now, the concept behind theirs is that when bacteria is brought up into space and then brought back down into Earth after experimentation, they tend to be more infectious than their counterparts originally on Earth. So what they want to do is send bacteria to the station to see if introducing different nutrients and compounds can block their growth. And if so, then they suggest further studies to give new tools to fighting germs here on Earth. The second one by Amir Mohammed is, can you teach an old spider new tricks? His plan is to bring zebra spiders up into space, which jump on their prey instead of catching them in a web. His question is, what happens to them in microgravity? He doesn't believe that the spider will catch its prey, but the big question is, can they adapt to hunt in a different way? And those are the two winners, and those will be flown aboard the International Space Station and streamed live on YouTube to see the results. Yeah, both of them are, are really, really worthy, but I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing the, uh, the, the zebra spider experiment. It'd be interesting to see what that thing actually does, and can it really, really adapt to... Uh, to this particular environment and uh, if it can can we learn anything about possibly adapting ourselves even quicker to the environment so very very interesting I'm looking forward to seeing that congrats to, to everybody and uh, congrats to everybody that actually participated it was uh, it, it, it's I'm glad that uh, a stem project is getting a lot of press so that's good news indeed if you'd like to check out any of the winners and see videos of their proposed plans you can go to youtube.com slash spacelab. All right. Now, with that, Gene, we're going to hand it off to you. Yeah, we're still on board the ISS, folks. Um, I'm looking at a actually two articles, one uh, from the Alaska Dispatch uh, dated March 24th, and another one from a publication called Tekka, also dated uh, Mar on March 26th. I'm sorry. And both of these guys uh, have outlined a little piece of space debris that uh, threatened the International Space Station over the weekend. The vehicle that in question, or should I say the piece of space junk in question, was actually a Russian uh, satellite, Cosmos 2251, that apparently had smashed into another spacecraft back in 2009. Um, the, the, according to Tekka here, the, the, the fragment size and the exact distance from the ISS when it passed by was not exactly known, but it was enough to go ahead and, and send out the alert and, uh, get the crew into the Soyuzes and, and batten down the hatches. And, uh, uh, they were, according to the Alaska Dispatch article, they were asked if, uh, they could see anything. Both said, no, we couldn't see a darn thing. Um, so, uh, it basically passed out of harm's way. Um, but again, this was just all precautionary. 
However, if there was indeed an impact, uh, the crews were, were ready to go ahead and essentially abandon ship and descend back home into the Soyuz vehicles and, uh, you know, arrive home safely. But, uh, uh, you know, all's well that ends well, and the ISS, again, lives to uh, to continue research another day. But this is, again, indicative of, of the space debris problem that's up there. Uh, there are about 22,000 pieces, according to this particular article from the uh, Alaska Dispatch, of, of sizable space junk that is being tracked by uh, – by various uh, uh, apparatuses here on Earth. And uh, again, it, it is a problem. And it's something that we've got to go ahead and fix. And, and we've, we've gone through that drill here so many times, um, either with the ISS or with other things. And uh, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a pressing problem. We've got to keep on going for it and keep uh, trying, trying to keep uh, our, an eye out and, and so on. And tr- but we've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. I mean, you can't go ahead and build uh, large, larger platforms and build, uh, you know, an ISS-2 if you want to. Um, uh, that might be more bigger and much more capable than, than the current uh, uh, current system without having to deal with all this. And uh, we've, we've created the mess, and so we've got to go clean it. Seriously, sometimes I think we should rename this show the Space Junk Podcast because that seems to be a topic <laughs> that comes up really often. Yeah, well, that's just it. Again, there, Sawyer. You know, it's indicative of of the problem. Uh, we've 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 talked to two pit individuals again that are are trying to mitigate the problem. We'll we'll probably talk more about it and with more uh, with with different experts in the area of not only just in trying just just the mechanics of trying to deal with the problem, but also the legality issues of the problem. Um, if something gets hit, if you have a wayward satellite up there and it gets hit by 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 another wayward satellite, who's responsible? What what nation? What entity is responsible for uh, for uh, you know, making reparations for uh, for the injured party? It's it's a whole big complex story, and and it's it's something we've that that is going to be more and more in the news as 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 the years go on. Plus, on the lighter side of space junk. The way my desk looks, I'm concerned about anything else falling out of the sky and landing on it. <laughs> it's sort of like what is what? There's this one insurance company here in America that's that's got a uh, commercial out like that, you know, where it just sits. Ah, oh, wayward space junk. We cover that, you know, just weird. I'm expecting that on my desk too, Mark. The way it looks. All right. So with that now, Mark, it goes back to you. Are we sticking with the International Space Station, or I think we may be straying away from it now. No, I'm back on solid ground on terra firma, and I, this was a follow-up, brief follow-up, to something that I mentioned recently where I talked about uh, 321 ignition, and then I talked about the National Ignition Facility and this phenomenal laser uh, system that they've developed there and are gradually cranking up the power on. They couldn't predict the power that this was capable of, but they're the record holder for the world's largest laser. And now it can also claim to be the first ever two megajoule ultraviolet laser after it generated. This was on March 22nd. This was out of, believe it or not, this publication called BusinessInsider.com. But it generated nearly 100 times more energy than any other laser in operation today. They had a record-breaking 2.03 megajoule burst of ultraviolet energy. It started with a single laser. It was split into 48 separate laser beams. They were redirected using mirrors, passed through amplifiers. After bouncing around, which must be confusing, 
the single beams quickly turned into 192 individual rays and were once again amplified. And that one billionth of a joule laser instantly became a 2.03 million joule monster for a fraction of a second. So for 23 billionths of a second, this produced a pulse of energy that contained 411 trillion watts of peak power. That is, get this, that is 1,000 times stronger than all of the energy used at any instant time from U.S. power plants combined. 1,000 times stronger than all of the energy used at any instant in time from U.S. power plants. 411 trillion watts of peak power. They weren't shooting it at anything, but in the future, they'll be targeting a very small bit of matter that they hope to achieve fusion, ignition, and see energy gain in a laboratory setting. This 2.03 megajoule blast was, like I said, ultraviolet energy. And after conversion from the original infrared to ultraviolet light, it was 2.03 megajoule before passing through diagnostic instruments and other optics on its way to the target chamber. This is located at Na Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and the National Ignition Facility is now the first 2 megajoule UV laser in the world, and they are capable of operating this baby around the clock. Open for business, you might say. Wow, I'm just still thinking about the power of that thing. That is just incredible. And thought that came to mind, you think, how can you get that much power without the lights going out everywhere? Yeah. Well, okay, let's do a parallel like your home stereo or a car stereo. You can get phenomenal power out of what's running off of your 12-volt battery in your car, 12-volt electrical system in your car. You can get phenomenal power that will damage your hearing for the rest of your life, you know, just in a vehicle with nothing but battery and, uh, and an engine running the electrical system. So they do it with the marvels of modern electronics. Technology is an amazing thing. Maybe we could try LASIK with that one, too. You think that would work? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> you better be real good on the laser, I'll tell you. <laughs> This will only hurt for an instant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So with that, I believe that we are ready to continue on to our final trip around the table. And we're going to be leaving Terra Firma, and we're going to be heading for a couple of quick stories about Mars. Covered that last week a little bit, but we've got two interesting stories this week. One of them is from Science Daily, which talked about some interesting features that were found on Mars. Now, what they found was what's called periodic bedrock ridges. So, basically, it looks like a sand dune, except rather than piled up sand from the wind, it's believed that it's actually wind erosion, and that the wind has actually cut this formation out into the rock. It's believed that the material itself is still bedrock, but probably softer and more erodible. What's so important about this discovery? Well, here's the thing. If it was just a regular dune or something like that, and it's a softer material or whatever, the facts that are inside of it, the important information about Mars's past, might be covered up. However, if this wind actually eroded into the rock, scientists might be able to see what is actually inside the rock and get a glimpse into Mars's past. Now that's unique, huh? 
That'll solve a lot of problems, that's for sure. Uh, you know, we'll get some more, you know, further insight into what's what's you know what Mars ge- Mars's geologic history was all about. I guess I, I don't know if it would be something analogous to, and and my geology is old and 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 fading, but if it would be something analogous to the strata that you see, you know, where where you've uh, you could tell the different epochs in in large you know large stone here or large rock here. Uh, just by looking at the side of a of a cliff or something like that, I mean, it's it's in some cases uh, it's clearly marked, and uh, I mean that's how we've been able to go ahead and verify something like the KT impact here on Earth, uh, where you've got one you know set of in that uh, in that strata where where it's all you know you it's all just just soot. So we've been able to verify that happened not just here in you know in in North America but all over the, all over the world that that's been that's been recorded. So I'm wondering too if if we could go ahead and use use something like this to to see into Mars's past even further than we can now. I just found that story really unique to think what could actually be lurking inside of that. Yeah, that, that's going to be an eye opener if we can figure that one out. Now, the second Mars story that I had is another unique feature, but the difference is this one we don't really know anything about. It's just a curious anomaly here. Now, there was an amateur astronomer in Pennsylvania whose name I know I will mispronounce, Wayne Jashk, I believe, and I apologize if I mispronounced that, which I most likely did. Now, he took a picture of Mars, which is normal for him, taking pictures of the sky on the evening of March 19th used a 14-inch telescope, but he noticed something. Coming off the southern pole of Mars, there seemed to be this giant plume. Now, he posted it actually online to a group online and tried to figure out what it was. He had sources that suggested it was a high-altitude water ice cloud, which is very possible, but we don't know what exactly what it is. It could be debris from a meteor impact, it could be a weather system, something from a dust storm, trick light. We don't know what it is, but it's this interesting little plume peeking right off the southern pole. Now, this isn't the first time they've seen something like this. The Hubble Space Telescope back in the late 90s took a look at a similar item, but this one's a little bit different, so it's going to be interesting to see what this feature actually is. Why all of a sudden, and and forgive me for for even thinking this, but why all of a sudden am I going to be thinking about... uh, Hearing something dropping out of the sky near Grover's Mill, New Jersey, <laughs> all of a sudden, and having reports of a cylinder landing and all this because of this this dark plume of something uh, on Mars happening. I'm just I'm not to have to forgive me. Well, a similar image was taken back in May of 1997 by Hubble, as I was just mentioning, something similar poking out. But that one, again, they weren't entirely sure what it was. It was most likely a high cloud catching sunlight, which this one could be as well. But you never know. There are always those theorists. And if you guys would like, I can post a link to the image so you guys can take a look at it and see if you can figure out what you think it might be. And it's Hmm. not aliens. Hmm, I don't know about that one. I mean, well, let me see. We we just had uh, opposition not too long ago. Um, you know, it would be a perfect time to launch. So you know. <laughs> yep, it, it's not aliens. Don't worry. Nope. But it is a unique feature on Mars, and a couple of things now to be explored further. Indeed, a couple of puzzles to unravel. Speaking of which, let's finish unraveling the puzzle of what 
topics we'll be talking about in this episode if you haven't already read the show notes. So, Gene, how about we move on to our next one? Yeah, sure. This is sort of a quasi-Mars story, I guess. We uh, we just celebrated a, a birthday of sorts on uh, March 23rd. Um, and the reason why I say this is a quasi-Mars story is the gentleman that I'm about ready to, to talk about here did advocate a, a trip to Mars, and it might have happened in, oh, around the mid-'80s time frame if this gentleman had his way. Had his way. But um, we didn't get to Mars, but uh, we did something a, a little different. We got to the moon, courtesy of this gentleman. I'm talking about uh, the uh, creator of the Saturn V, Werner von Braun. He, if he were alive, he would have celebrated his 100th birthday on March 23rd. And uh, folks over at the um, U.S. Space and Rocket Center threw him a huge party uh, this past Friday night. I'm looking at uh, AL.com, uh, a uh, article dated last Friday. His uh, One of his daughters, uh, Margaret von Braun, also gave a little bit of a, a nice talk um, about her, her father. Uh, basically saying that uh, the day he became a U.S. citizen uh, was the uh, the proudest day of his life and saluted her father, saluted her mother, uh, basically uh, saying that uh, she still felt her mom was the one of the strongest people she knew. Um, and But she, she called her one of the key people of Apollo. The other key person of Apollo she, she, called, uh, she called out was uh, Von Braun's secretary. Uh, Bonnie Holmes, and she basically referred to her as the super glue of the Apollo program. Um, there were other speakers um, there, including uh, acting um, Marshall Space Flight Center director uh, Gene Goldman, basically calling um, Von Braun, quote, uh, we feel the influence of Von Braun and his team this very day, close quote. He was an outstanding engineer what uh, he was admired most for was that he was a great leader who inspired greatness around him. Um, and uh, again, this is a gentleman that uh, literally was the linchpin to get us to the to get the United States to the moon back in uh, the 1960s. So, and and the inventor of of the of the Saturn V. So once more, again, happy birthday to uh, to Werner von Braun and and uh, the thanks uh, to. Uh, to him for uh, for everything he's done to try to go ahead and not only inspire us back then to get to the moon and, and onward, but hopefully um, his words will echo through the uh, through the years and inspire us further to go further and farther out into uh, into the void of space just to find out what's out there. Indeed. So happy birthday once again to Dr. Werner von Braun, who would have been 100. Wow. I believe then we've covered everybody except one person still has a story left so mark always saving the best for last what do you have for us nah, actually this is the boring stuff and uh you know <laughs> i've started out talking about the space station and the laser thing and now here we are talking about a intellectual property and an auction oh gee don't tell me you're going to talk about that stuff yes i am NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center has an uh, office there called the Innovative Partnership Program Office. And on March 29th, they're holding an auction with ICAP, Ocean, T-O-M-O, Ocean Tomo LLC of Chicago. They're going to be selling three NASA-developed technology lots totaling 12 patents. 
Why is this important? It's because NASA aims to desire, they, one of their desires is to accelerate the transfer of its technologies. This partnership with ICAP Ocean Tomo will help augment NASA's licensing program. It will achieve their commitment of disseminating information about technical achievements. It's going to promote the use of NASA-sponsored technology for uses that are beyond NASA missions. Licensing of NASA technologies has benefited many industries. I'm reading from a press release that came out on March 23rd. Uh, the industries that have benefited from this have been medical, aerospace, automotive, and communications. Let me tell you about just a couple of things. A gentleman named Norden Huang, a former Goddard researcher, is one example. He invented a set of algorithms for signal processing that were licensed by Dyna DX Corporation of Mountain View, California. The company uses this licensed NASA technology for medical diagnosis and prediction of problems related to the brain's blood flow, such as stroke, dementia, and traumatic brain injury. Is that important? Oh, no. NASA only does rockets. Well, this patent portfolio is coming up for auction, and it's staggering with regard to the potential scope of its impact, says the senior technology transfer manager, Daryl Mitchell from Goddard. The applications range from something as broad as changing how software is created to applications as specific as autonomic management of smoke detector networks in buildings. Just to uh, sweeten the deal a little bit, Winning bidders will be afforded an opportunity to briefly discuss the technologies with the inventors and bidders that wish to engage in depth with those inventors can gain access to the inventor through a reimbursable agreement with NASA, which basically means that if you pay for this individual's time and the resources utilized out of their normal work will let you have one of the premier inventors in technology at your disposal. So I think it's pretty slick. The first time I saw this, I read through it, and I go, yeah, 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 yeah. But wait a minute. This is what we're talking about. This is things that in five and ten years or whatever the time frame is in the future, we're going to hear about stuff that was developed. And, oh, by the way, this for, was from technology licensed from NASA. And look what it's doing to change our world. So I just wanted to end up on something that I thought was quite unique, and I hope everybody appreciates better some of these less glamorous aspects of what NASA does for us. I'm just thinking, Mark, you said traumatic brain injury, correct? That was mm -hmm. also part of the patent. I'm right. thinking. I, I'm thinking too. Traumatic brain injury right now, at least from from uh, in our military anyway, is 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 a big deal right now i mean we've got our, our guys that have that have been suffering these injuries from you know ieds and what have you and uh, again a valuable spinoff from nasa may actually be helping our our guys in in uniform uh, overcome some of the the injuries of war too so um again a, a great a great uh, a great investment yeah, and just, you know, it's it's one of those things that you don't think about it, but when you have a medical situation with yourself, with a family member, with somebody you care about, when there's a medical situation, you want miracles to happen. And if there's a miracle that's in the room next door that comes from tax dollars that were spent five and ten years ago, 
that now are out in the medical community today, what could be better? All right. And with that, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. This was a lot of fun tonight, Sawyer. But you know something? It ran lightning fast, and I had a blast tonight. And I hope everybody listening out there also had a blast blast listening to it. it, This one's going to be a fun one, I think. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. My pleasure. And I guess people have figured this out from listening to me. Uh, I miss an incredible amount of news and events that goes on. That's why sometimes, Sawyer, when you and Gene are, are talking about things, I'm going huh, wow, really? Because I just miss things. But what I do talk about is stuff that just gets my attention, something that excites me, something that's like, wow, I didn't know that. And so I hope everybody appreciates some of my out-of-left-field things because I just want to I want to talk about science, technology, spaceflight, all that good stuff, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share the floor with you folks. All right, that ends our shows for March as well. We have a couple of great things coming up for you in April and a couple of major milestones with the Space Shuttle program as well, and we'll be sure to cover each and every one of those. So we will see you next time, but for now, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.